This is the Black Hall Podcast with Ryan Millsap. Georgia has film and television production. It also has the digital gaming business. Let's face it, Georgia is redefining what success looks like in the world of entertainment. Ryan Millsap has seen it all firsthand. The real estate entrepreneur recognized opportunity and founded Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, creating one of the country's leading movie studios. But that was yesterday. Like all great entrepreneurs, wanderlust sets in. Ryan's next foray into the entertainment business could change the landscape in film and television. Nietzsche said, in heaven, all the interesting people are missing. You'll find a lot of them on the Black Hall Podcast with Ryan Millsap. Welcome. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Podcast. Today on the podcast, I've got funny man, Joel Stein. You've heard him here on this podcast before, but today, yes, today, I've got Joel Stein in the flesh, in Los Angeles, at the Waldorf Astoria. He's so close, I could reach out and shake his hand. All right, back to work. Joel Stein is a Stanford graduate. Yes, the same school that Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of. And I think it was a good thing that Joel stayed and completed his degree because this is where he began his writing career, with the Stanford Daily. Growing up on good old Exit 9, Joel Stein and the state of New Jersey are like what Forrest Gump would say. Like peas and carrots. Career-wise, let's take a peek into Joel's world. In 2006, Stein began writing for the LA Times under the heading Warriors and Wusses. Stein said it's a cop-out to oppose a war and yet claim to support the soldiers fighting in it. Fellow journalist Mark Stein of the New York Sun said, quote, Joel Stein is a hawkish chicken, disdaining the weasel formulation too many anti-war folks take refuge in. Joel Stein does not look like a chicken. Stein is an acclaimed author, penning articles for Time Magazine, where he had a weekly column for many years, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many others. Acclaimed biography writer Walter Isaacson said of Stein, I think he's got the quirkiest sense of humor I see today. I agree with Walter Isaacson. Help me welcome my friend, Joel Stein. Joel, welcome back to the Black Hall Podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. This is actually the first time we got to meet in person. You're a giant man. I didn't see that coming. I, I, and you're, you're meeting me in, have you described this room yet? No, please oh, do. Oh my God. So there's a brand new hotel in Beverly Hills called oh, the, it's the a Waldorf. Waldorf first. I mean, we're just going to tap 1% words on top of 1% words. Uh, it's a Beverly, it's the, and inside it is the Jean George restaurant, which has enormous ceilings and it has a room a private room. This is clearly a private dining room. It's got some giant chandelier that if this were some kind of superhero movie, it would fall and, and someone would save me. Or maybe not. Maybe they would kill me and that would be the, the great end of the movie. But it's the weirdest thing is it's these huge open glass windows and doors so the entire restaurant can watch this. Are you uncomfortable? No. You know, I feel like many, much of my life uh, is lived in a fishbowl like this psychologically. How so? Well, you know, the the studio I built in Atlanta was not just a normal business deal. It also was very political because of all the work around the tax credit. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so there were constantly uh, reporters, constantly politicians, 
um, constantly a sociology around the business that wasn't just a business. And so it, it made my life a little bit uh, more public than I would normally seek it to be. Then there's reporters who are interviewing those people. They're the worst. <laughs> we can agree on that, right? Well, it depends on the day and okay. the questions, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But um, oh, so your whole life became a my whole life because became you were in the middle of this tax credit correct. discussion. Yeah, yeah, and so I even had like um, uh, environmental groups um, do vandalism to one of my properties. One of my, where I live, they came to my house and they spray painted my fence and and put flyers all up around like about this. This all seems like it would hurt the environment. Yeah, well, the <laughs> you mean flyers, you, the graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't bring logic into this. That's <laughs> so true. Uh, but they put flyers all over. I live in this small town just outside of Atlanta called uh, Social Circle. It's called Social Circle? Isn't that a funny name? Is this one of those? Okay, my, what, one of my college roommates lives in Alpharetta. Alpharetta. Which, which yeah. is like when I visited him there, it seemed like they had built it hours before I got there. Well, Alfred is much newer okay. than Social Circle. And Social there was Circle a t- sounds newer. Social Circle... Sounds it like was, it was built by Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, ironically, there's a gigantic Facebook data center in Social Circle. Of course there is. Yeah. There's no irony there. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, the, the name originally comes, I think, from like the 1800s. And, and the people who named the town literally just consider themselves all be pretty good friends. And they're like, well, this is just our Social Circle. That is lovely. And I'm sure it was a diverse community... Of, of uh, it's pretty diverse, uh, you know, because it it's a um, there's a it, well, it's diverse in the in the southern sense that there's white and black families. Well, that's what I meant. So, yeah. yeah, so it's not you know it's not just a white town and um, it's an integrated town and and you find a lot of these towns in in the more rural south where families have lived together, right. black and white, right. for five generations. Okay, so I moved to Atlanta from Los Angeles right. eight years ago. Wow. And I bought this farm five years ago, and I absolutely love it. It's not a big Georgia farm; um, it's 108 acres. But for a California, Californian, 108 acres is infinity. What do you grow on a 108 acre? Farm? It is it is a non uh, farming farm. Oh, you're it's, a gentleman farmer. It's a gentleman's farm. I'm a gentleman journalist now. That's <laughs> what I've been telling people because there's no more money in it, and I still do it, and it's fun. But you because you like it. I like it, but it feels ridiculous. Yeah, well, M- much like not farming a farm, I guess. A gentleman's farm it, it still has things to do. So, like we ride four wheelers. I've got four wheeler trailers oh, all nice. over it. About half the farm is field, but it's it's rolling hills. The the the, the whole hundred and eight acres only has eighty feet of elevation change. I it's, think you should up the game and like instead of not farming it, you should farm something uh, ridiculous on it. Not not just wine, like not grapes, but like like marijuana. No, 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 no. Something like. Uh, coriander or something that like yeah mm. something really specific and unnecessary right mustard seed that would be pretty good or some kind of uh flower i don't know what is what would be the most useless name we can think of uh what what are the um what are the little berries they make gin out of oh juniper, juniper that's a berries. great choice i you know what <laughs> i planted in my backyard which you could just grow tons of finger limes They're the most useless food, I think. What are finger limes? They're so fun. Okay, so finger limes, they're about the size of a little smaller than your finger, much smaller than your finger. You're a giant man. (laughs) And um, they're they're citrus, and you you cut them in half, and there's the the lime is in the form of caviar. So there are these little, like, bursting bubbles of lime inside, 
would you put in your cocktail or on top of your dessert or in your fish or whatever? That sounds fun. Actually. It's so fun. And it's great when you, like we had people over last night. It's great to just put them on their food because it seems like a crazy food. So instead of squeezing lime, you can make tacos and throw these little balls of lime. Totally. And they have a little crunch to them. Yeah. I think that's cool. Maybe yeah. we should Done. Uh, get that at a taco. What else do you need solved? Tell me about Will Smith. <laughs> I've interviewed Will Smith. Yeah. How was yeah. When? How long ago? Uh, Bad Boys 2. In, I was flown out to Hawaii by Comedy Central. So various people at times thought, oh, we should put this guy on camera. And then they do it and then they regret it. And this was for a short period of time, Comedy Central. Short period of time, Comedy Central would have me on the set of movies or interviewing people for little half hour, probably shorter interstitials between when they couldn't sell them, I guess, to fill them with other shows. And I flew out, interviewed Martin Lawrence and Gabriel Union and Will Smith and Bad Boys 2 and Michael Bay, I think. And if you, when you look back at that interview, would you have ever guessed that? What happened at the... No. <laughs> yeah. I, and there's no interview I've ever done with anyone where I'm guessing, oh, <laughs> the Oscars, they're going to walk on stage and slap a comedian. Were you watching live when it happened? I never watched the Oscars. I've written for an Oscars, but I never, ever watched the Oscars. And I drove home from somewhere, and my wife had gotten like an ABC code from my mom so she could watch it. She was watching on a computer, and I came to help with dinner. So we were literally... I don't know, I came in 10, 15 minutes before that, and we were watching it, and we were confused, and I was excited. There's just various times when I get culturally excited about something, and I immediately like got on Twitter, obviously, and then saw the Japanese feed, because I was really confused as to what was going on. Yeah, like, what just happened? Was that scripted? And, and like everyone else, when he started cursing, I was like, you could A, see it in his face, and B, you knew they wouldn't script something with cursing. Like, they just, um, and it was so intense and so weird. I was, I was so into it. And I just wanted him to win so I could hear him speak. I was just rooting so hard for him to win. Well, how good did Chris Rock do? You know, it's interesting. The more I think about it, I, the better I think he did. Like, at the time, I had this notion that, like, a person, especially a comedian who's on stage, owns the stage, and you've, and you, you will lose to that person because it's their house. And I was like, oh, and it's Chris Rock. It's like someone who can handle a crowd or anything. And I was like, I, I'm assuming he he should have spent the next five minutes making fun of Will Smith himself, his marriage, his whatever. Just going, oh, like uh, I won't mention your wife, but I will mention, you know. <laughs> yeah, the next 10 things, 10 minutes on Will Smith. And then looking back, I'm like, Will Smith was unhinged and sort of dangerous. And his job was to return to normalcy. So I think Chris Rock, and Chris Rock then went, he's so good. He then did stand-up that was scheduled for Monday. And he said, I'm not going to talk about this yet because I need to process it. And it's like, he's such a professional. Like This thing happened and he's not going to, Wasted. He's going to explore it and give it some thought and come up with something good. Um, and I really respected that. But um, I didn't like the fact that there was this human instinct in the room to just pretend it didn't happen and normalize it. I found that really weird. Everyone except Puffy or whatever he calls himself now. What did he do? I didn't hear. He's the this. only one who like addressed it. Like of all people, 
First of all, he got on stage to talk about The Godfather, which made no sense. And then to have De Niro and Pacino stand there still. And then there was, I, I enjoyed everything I saw, because then there was that weird in memoriam where they sang gospel songs and danced about dead people. It was just, I just thought, it's just everything since Trump's election just is like, feels even crazier to me. Like everything feels so unhinged. What was your intuitive response? You said you were kind of like excited culturally. Yeah. What, I mean, what was going through your emotions? Just like, this is craziness. Like someone broke the most basic cultural norm, like that in front of so many people in such a formal setting. It just, I was, it just was, I just didn't know what could happen. Well, you're in that. What I thought was interesting about that is that I could see that happening somewhere else. But when you walk into an environment like the Oscars, you're expecting to get roasted. When you walk into a comedy club, you're expecting. Either way, these two, I just, I've been watching these two cultures clash. This like ancient Roman honor culture and the kind of Christian social culture. It clashes with masks. It clashes with politics, it clashes everywhere. And then just to see it out loud, like, you have insulted my woman. I'm going to literally slap you. Like, it's 17th century France. Like, <laughs> and a duel will be had. I was like, what is, that is not, like, maybe we've returned to that honor culture. Like, there were a lot of people who thought that he did the right thing, which proves that this honor culture is still around. Like, this, we live in, like, a very Sopranos time where that honor culture kind of is back. If it was Sopranos, it would have been closed fist. Well, that, I've heard people who know much more about this, like, than me, like, uh, and a slap in an honor culture can be uh, a way to establish dominance in a different way, especially, like, Will Smith's a big dude who's, um, and Chris Rock is not, and he walked up to him, and it was a way of, hum it's more humiliating than punching someone in a lot of ways, um, it doesn't do the damage, but it, it's like showing people what you can do. Yeah, except Chris Rock took that slap, didn't even move his feet. Because he had popped back up, yeah. moved, on, moved on like he... Well, because it wasn't meant to damage. It was meant to like imply dominance, as was the yelling. Right, but do you really... If, if, you, if, if you, you punch someone, it's like, a, it's like a fight that you like have to beat them up. It was more like, look what I can do to you. Yeah, but if you get to cold cock somebody, you're gonna knock him out, right? And it, and and if he was, also you can get away with the slap if he had punched him. Like that's all over, right? No, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of shocked that he got away with. It was such a weird slap. It was like he slaps all the time. It was like you, you sir, know how to slap. <laughs> <laughs> like slap from, training. It was from a great distance, and like he like knew his own arm length. It was pretty amazing. Well, I couldn't slap someone like that. You don't think so? No way. I mean, he had I, he did have a good quick delivery. So quick. And and a great follow through. Like he slaps a lot of people. Uh, I mean, it was like even like it was like a golf shot with not hips. His, not his first slap. Hmm, that would be interesting. No, yeah. one, no one's coming out of the closet though. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, have you right? been slapped by Will Smith? Have you been slapped by Will Smith? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I wonder if he has roles where he learned slap training. Hmm. Well, you would think whoever his slap trainer is on whatever set, like the Bad Boys Two slap, would come come out and brag a little bit. Right? Like, I taught him that slap. I taught him that slap. Yeah. I remember when I was training him, like, seven years ago. <laughs> I mean, he... He, he, his, he retained he, it he, all. He kinesthetically retained the ability to... 
hit not just with his open hand, but with his hips. Were any of the movies that were being shot at, on your stages uh, Will Smith? slap movies? I'm trying to think if there were any slaps. I mean, you, you had Tomorrow War. Probably no slaps. That would be all like What guns. was Tomorrow War? Tomorrow was Chris Pratt. Oh, I saw billboards for that yeah. constantly. It was a great movie, actually. Was yeah. it? It yeah. was time travel, right? It, it, the time travel got weird, and that part, I think... Time travel always gets weird. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that... Because that gets you that gets into your you know frontal cortex so far. Yeah. The first thing it's like there's several things in your life where you're immediately logic police on. And as soon as someone brings up time travel, you have like you immediately enter with like your lawyer brain. You're like, I got seven questions about this contract. Yeah. And it, well, it's just so complicated. You know, I don't. I actually, you know, I my specialty in philosophy. I, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, and my specialty in philosophy was time, eternity and divine omniscience. We're going to have to do this a little more slowly for me. Time. Time. And then you say eternity? Eternity. That seems like it's just part of time, to be honest. Well, I, like I, that's actually a hugely controversial oh, question. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to step into that. Yeah, and, and then divine omniscience is just the question of what does God know? Oh, okay, omniscience in general. Omniscience. Yeah, yeah. Now, omniscience would say I know Where did you go to school? This sounds like a Christian organization. Well, I went to undergrad at a school called Biola here in L.A. Yeah, yeah, and then I But I studied philosophy at Oxford. That's where I got really into time. Um, I studied with a guy named Richard Swinburne at Oriel College, and his one of his specialties. Oriel is one of the colleges at Oxford. Or? Uh, Oriel okay. is one of the colleges yeah. at Oxford, and and Swinburne um, specialized in time, and so I did a lot of exploration with him around. You know, here I have like one of the world's foremost experts on philosophical time, not physics time. Those are different. I could explain. Did you read the story in the New York Times yesterday? Which I did not know why I read it, but mm -hmm. it was long about how they're recalibrating the second. See, that's physics time. That was physics. It was all about the atom and yeah. like, yeah. yeah. But it did get into, you really, they overlap a little bit because they were talking a little bit about, I took this one course in college about Chaucer and time, I think. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I learned that like before there were clocks everywhere, the notion of time was real soft. It was like if you met someone for lunch, you sort of just met them. And it wasn't until trains codified this stuff. But it was also the fact that for a long time, you would know when there was 12 hours a day and 12 hours of night. So an hour switched its length. So it wasn't 60 minutes. It was, it was a 12th of daylight. 12th of daylight. And then, which already sucks. The fact that we're using like the Egyptian 12 instead of a normal person, 10 fingers. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then we grabbed like the Babel, like whoever's 60 and subdivided. Like we just did a mess of this thing. And um, then we have to have a, a, a leap year to try to fix it. Well, that I, I actually appreciate that. That was that well. They had, like they're a lot trying to fix it. They got to fix it. You know, there's leap seconds every uh, <laughs> yeah. every couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what a weird thing to study. So you grew up pretty religious. No. 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 I I, I just got deep into uh, philosophical questions when I was about 19. Is it marijuana or why did this happen? No. I you know I've never done any drugs at all, other than alcohol. Oh. But um, because my brain was already so active in these areas, you know, like when my friends described to me like. Um, uh, drug trips. Oftentimes, I'll think, "Oh, I, I kind of know what that's right. like." It's you know, it's like being philosophical, or it's like getting really deep into spirituality and trying to like go and hear the voice of God. That was one of the. That was a profound being spiritual in experience. The present is incredibly powerful and exhausting. I find like the few times I've. I mean, I haven't had me had that experience, but the few times I'm even close to being in the present, I find myself. Uh, it's it's exhilarating, but kind of exhausting. 
if God actually yeah. knows the future, then is there any free will? Yeah, well, I go the other way. Um, I go, there's no free will. And the, the, va- the moments when I've had any kind of momentary connection and, and being in the present, I feel like me, I've had this moment of feeling like, and I can't explain it now because it's not accurate, but I had a feeling like, oh, that rock, me, same thing. Like, like we both think we're making decisions and doing things, but we're just here at the second. And yeah, so I go the other way on the free will part. But don't you, but you experience, like you wake up in the morning, you feel like you have choices. Like right now oh, you yeah. can choose to drink coffee or not right, choose to drink Right, but if I really explore them, I don't think I do. I, th- I think there's a lot of things I, th- I think are going on that aren't going on. But if you have a philosophical choice, right, because you don't know if you have actual free will or not, but it seems like you have free will. Yeah, it seems like I do. So then in a but world... But if observed from... The, lots of things seem true to me. I, I'm pretty sure I'm the perfect exact center of the universe and, and everything, everything that matters is only happening to me. There's lots of things I believe from my crappy perspective. I think free will is just one of them. But then how does believing that there's not free will in any way help your life? It makes me nicer on the road. I think I have a will. I just don't think I have free will. I only have the choice. What's the it. difference between will and free will? Oh, like I, I want things. I'm a, I, like I have desires and I have uh, ambitions and impetus and, and moves towards helping people even. But I just don't think I'm in control ultimately of those things. And the things that, I, that are affecting it are, you know, my physical brain, how I was, all the experiences I've had. Like it's all adding up to different decisions that would have been made otherwise. I'm just not in control of those things so so this while is what, by the way the two things i'm not allowed to talk about in my house are free will and ants and i'm i so and i will push any conversations towards those two things i, I love that yeah. Wait, so let, let's let's divert to ants for a second no, Why, no i'm just yeah. is that real ants? that is real yeah because you like i wrote this incre- so i've been writing this column for medium they uh-huh. paid me to write a weekly column and i was writing my column like i've always written a column since college and then it struck me that like I don't have, this is like a new world. I don't have an editor. I don't really have readers. Like, what is going on? Like, why don't I just write about whatever I want to write about? I'm like, what do I want to write about? I just want to call academics and find out stuff I don't know. So I wrote, like, this endless piece about ants a couple weeks ago. I interviewed, like, all the top myrmecologists in the country. What kind of things did you learn? So much. And again, so boring. I love this stuff. Uh, I have massive curiosity for almost any of topic. ants. Yeah. So, well, I've never spent a lot of time thinking about ants, well, ants but I'd be very will, fascinating to ants and free will strike me because when you look at ants, you, you know they're not making decisions, right? But they're doing stuff. So, like, they're not robots, but they're not like animals, like humans or dogs or horses. Like, what what is going on? They look like little robots, and uh, I know lots of interesting things about them. You know, all the ones that you look at are are female. Like all the ants you ever see, like the males have wings and they do like once a year fly out and have sex with queens and then die. Like, um, but all the ones you're looking at are female. There's, I, I didn't know I, that. So there's so, so much. So the queen know. is a male or a female? No, the queen's a female, but she's deep in that colony. You're not going to get to her. Okay. Um, and she basically is, it's the uh, handmaid's tale for her. She's just sitting there laying eggs and that's her whole life. And then the ones that get spermed turn into these female workers and the ones that don't only have one set of DNA and they turn into the men. So all the uh, ants are incredibly genetically the same. So they're, we do things conceptually to, to move our genes ahead. So we'll like try and have sex and like beat up other dudes and whatever we do. <laughs> Whereas ants 
because they're so, these female ants are so similar genetically, their objective is to uh, help the colony more than themselves. So they will kill themselves to help the colony over nothing. Like they don't, they have no respect for their own lives. Because they see themselves as a whole. Yeah, and it's weird because when you start trying to study ants, studying an individual ant and comparing that to an individual human gets a little weird and you start wind up comparing the colony to a human. Like, oh, this is the part of the colony that gets food for the other part. And this is, even though it's not eating, they're all like, you start seeing ants less as like individuals and more like parts of it. And then you start thinking about humans and like, well, how many of our decisions are controlled by like our gut biome? And like, are we in complete control of us or are all creatures kind of like intertwined? Okay, I think I hear maybe a distinction. So when you hear free will, do you hear complete control? Not heard any decision making whatsoever. That's any not biological. That's not, yeah. So, so you believe we have a will. The real question about free will, the most important question about free will is about responsibility. Right. So why punish people? Like, that's an interesting question. Right. So I think which things are you responsible for? What choices are you responsible for? The ramifications are are tied to some willful Uh, decision. Yeah, I I don't blame people. And that doesn't mean that I don't make decisions based on people's actions. Like if if someone's really crappy, it's just like, I don't want to deal with them. Is it their fault? I don't think so, but it doesn't make me want to deal with them anymore. Like that happened to you because of your childhood. Like, I believe that, but I still don't want to hang out with you. Like, if you can fix that, great. If not, like, I don't want to make it my problem. So I see punishing people as uh, an effective tool for society, both to get the people out of society who are harmful, and also as, like, as like an incentive to warn people to not do those things, but not just to, like, punish them and get back at them. I think that's stupid. Right, but so the incentive to tell them to not do something... Right. That assumes that they have some sort of capacity. No, I think we have wills. We don't have free wills. So I want things, and I will do what it takes to get those things. Like, but it doesn't mean I'm making those decisions. So none of the decisions, ultimately, you have the power over, is what you're saying. Right. But my little brain... Wants to have power. Wants, wants to things, believe. Or wants power, ambition, or food. And I will, I will learn, like, these are the ways to get that. Like, I'm, you know, and that's will. As Nietzsche like talks about will or sure, ambition, no, whatever you want to call it. What what about imagination? Like is 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 imagination all just forced upon us by other forces, or what what part of our imagination is our own, and what part of our uh, our willingness to follow our imagination is our own choice? Well, I don't think there's choice, but I think we have, clearly we have imagination, we have thoughts, we have you know. Um, so when we when we imagine and then choose, you think that's completely illusion. I don't think we choose. Yeah. You think it's elude, the illusion of choice. Very much so. And that we don't have responsibility, ultimately, you know what, in ex- that regard. Uh, is a really quick read that explains this Your, This take, yeah. And by the way, this theory does, like, it's not just philosophy. It, like, affects things. Like, it affects the way we do psychology. Like, do we do cognitive behavioral therapy? Which, or do we do Freudian things? Like, do we talk about your mom forever and try and get it, like your will and your decision or are we like you know what this is just how your brain's working so we're going to rewire it by making you do these this thing a hundred times in a row until you stop being afraid of airplanes or whatever the cognitive behavioral therapy is Mm -hmm. but um the sam harris book free will is super short and it gets at the neurology of some of this stuff Uh i like i like you know i i i I like the way that sam i don't always agree with him but i like the way he thinks yeah you know he's a very smart guy 
Um, okay, well, we're not going to solve free will, even though I could sit and talk I've about it for hours. <laughs> I, I can't be. More, I couldn't have been more clear. Yeah. <laughs> the problem, though, is that in that in that philosophical paradox, if you don't really have free will, then you have almost no capacity to really understand it because everything's an illusion. So you almost can't understand nothing. No, 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 struggle. no, no, no. Just because you um, information is going to change the way you behave. Like this isn't this is not nihilism at all. Like you should, you know, it's that um, David Foster Wallace thing about what you. It, it makes it more important what you decide to to take in as far as information and experiences, because because if you don't have free will, those things are going to control um, what you do. I mean, it's input output. So you see it like software. Yes. Development, like yeah. you're, you're just recoding. Yeah. And the code is going to run. The program, yeah. but you might be able to somehow fix the code, but or, then, or screw up the code. Like I think all the social media we look at is screwing up the code, screwing up the code. The, the dopamine hits and all that stuff is definitely screwing up our code. So I think you have to be careful about what code. And now I'm clearly going proving that I haven't like like done any coding since my Apple IIe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you have to be really careful about what you take in. I think people. I think we're really sloppy about all the inputs we take in. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to move on because I, I would have a ton of questions around the inputs and our choices. I mean, literally, like, what we read, what we watch, who we talk to, like, we're just really sloppy. Right, but every single one of those is choices. So then as we, like, try to refine that, that's all, that feels like will to me. It like, is will, but it's not free will. So I think they're also reinforcing. Like, the more of one thing you do, the more it's going to lead to another thing. So I, I agree. I actually agree there where... Um, we're try- I think what we're trying to do in that refinement is we're trying to get to free will. We're trying to get to a place where we aren't um, pushed and, and pulled and yeah. controlled. Well, it's a religious question because in order to believe in free will, you have to physically believe there's something in your body like a soul, something without weight that's, a, that's somewhat, not imaginary, but like um, non-physical. I mean, just, a soul doesn't. Not, a soul, I mean, Aristotle didn't believe in a non-physical soul, but he just believed that whatever the whole makeup of this being that is a human somehow adds up to this thing that isn't physical that exists. Well, it's it's it's. Think about the way that like we feel things across our chest, we feel things in our gut, we feel things in our loins, we think in our brains. But there's neurons in all those places. Like absolutely. Yeah. So so somehow those neurons are functionally what we experience as soul. And, and just like we can't explain why the universe spins and, and, yeah. and expands, we can't explain any of these things. We can observe them in a similar way. We can observe the neurons, but then we also experience something that we can't... We experience gravity and we can't explain it. We right. experience soul and we can't explain Everyone it. Everyone keeps telling me we don't know what gravity is. Like, Don't we know that it's just like the... I, I have no... Now we're way beyond me. Isn't it just like... The force on the space-time continuum. That, it, like, it is. It? it is. We can measure. We don't know why it exists. Like again, just like we know there was a big bang, we can measure right. the movement and say there were there right. was a time when there was nothing and it exploded. We have no idea why it exploded right. or how it exploded or what caused an explosion. Similar, gra- we can measure gravity. We know it exists. We take it consider- consideration in all our physics equations. Right. But we can't explain why there's gravity. It just is. Yeah. That, that's the that's the big paradox of gravity. My son, who's twelve, had to read this book about gravity. The science teacher assigned the whole class without clearly without reading it, because there's no way a twelve year old should have to read this book. It was, um, it, and then my friend AJ Jacobs blurbed it. So my son and I just called AJ Jacobs and yelled at him, 
And, and it also became clear that I'm not sure AJ read it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's change topics. So I just got back from Miami. You know how often people say that to me? Let's change topics. Both let's change topics and I just got back from Miami. <laughs> I too just got back from Miami. Well, you wrote a big article about Miami. I did, but I've been there since then. I've been to Miami twice. Ta- wait, I've been what, to like three places since lockdown and then two of them were Miami. What's your take on Miami? Uh, wait, that's a big question. I know. Yeah. That's why I'm, I, it's kind of open-ended. Like, I t- like Miami. What, a thing you, what do you like about it? Um, I think it's, uh, I like that there's a bunch of different, like, I like the whole Latin American feeling that like, we're going to, I don't like to eat dinner late, but I like the fact that other people are, um, I like, I like people's kind of open attitude towards, uh, visitors and strangers. I like, um, obviously like the weather. I don't know. It's fun. Miami. I'm not going to move there, but it's fun. Both my parents as a Jew. Uh, live in their uh, that area like half the year. Where do they do they live? North part of my Miami. My dad's like, in Miami Beach. Okay, he's um, in Miami Beach proper. Like proper, yeah. I mean, um, sort of proper. It's like that. It's not South Beach. It's like north of South Beach, mm-hmm. where like the Jews have consistently lived, like old like, Jews, like uh, Ball Harbor. No, south of there. So south, Ma- okay. Miami Beach proper. Yeah. Okay. And then my mom is in Key not West. Not the Orthodox Jews. I guess that's more Ball Harbor. Is that where they are? Yeah, a massive population. Is that where that mall is? Uh-huh, exactly. I met the guy who owned that mall for that you story. <laughs> yeah, it's like third generation of guys who own that mall. That it's mall like, is crazy. It's just like super high-end stores, and people fly in from other countries, and I assume use it for laundering money. Like, I can't figure out what that mall's for. <laughs> I mean, a lot of money is spent at that mall. It's crazy. He was telling me, you know, he was afraid they'd be screwed when, you know. COVID. When COVID hit, and he's like, Go, go to the, I don't know if it's a Rolex, whatever watch store is in there. He's like, go. Every up, watch store is in there. Every watch store is in there. He's like, go try and buy a watch. He's like, they will, they will sell it to you and tell you they can deliver it in two years. He's like, and, and there's a waiting list and it keeps getting longer and longer. It's, the economy is so confusing right now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that watch stuff had to do with supply chain. Oh, I love talking about the supply chain. And in, 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 with watches or <laughs> any at all? Just, just, I think of all the words I never heard before COVID. Like supply chain is high on that list. Well, Miami has no sh- shortage of a supply chain of visitors. No, not just visitors. More people moved to Miami since COVID than any other city in the U.S. And more people have left L.A. than any other city in the U.S. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's actually not that surprising to me. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of... I love, I, I, I love California even more not living here. So I love to come back and that's visit. Our, that's our new slogan. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So why do you love it more now that you don't live here? That's a deep sigh. Yeah. The I felt that um, you know California, especially Southern California, your life so revolves around traffic and congestion, um, and so when you're living here, you don't realize like how much pressure all of the other bodies are putting on you mm. at, 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 at any one time until you leave and you go somewhere where like, uh, you know, people open. complain about traffic in Atlanta, but they have no idea. Traffic in Atlanta is nothing compared uh. to traffic in Los Angeles. And then, um, and then just the melting pot of, I think there's 200 plus languages spoken in Los Angeles. You don't realize like how much a pressure, psychological pressure it is to just be in that kind of melting pot. Oh, that's interesting. Until you go somewhere where you don't have as much of that and it's kind of like decompressing. No different than if you go to Nebraska, right? And you're but do you feel like LA is different than New York that way? Are they both? No, LA, New York, same. LA, New York, same. And LA, New York have different 
you know, different pressures. Yeah. Right. And Manhattan has its own energies that are really wonderful. Just like LA has its own wonderful energies, but the negative energies of Manhattan, I think yeah. are different than the negative energies of LA. And, and, but, but what I found is that when I come back to visit California, I don't get the negative energy. I don't have to deal with the negative energies because I'm only here briefly. So I sure. get all the, I yeah. get all the benefits, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then I can like, yeah. So you're not coming back. You're staying out there. I love Georgia. Yeah. It's a fantastic place yeah. to live. Truly, like, Atlanta's magic. The, the city. Like, everyone, like, is so excited about Atlanta. They should be. It, yeah. Atlanta is a, is a dynamic, diverse, intelligent um, metropolis. So yeah. you, get, you, get, you might not get every single experience you can have in L.A. or New York, but you get pretty darn close, but then you, you, you take away a lot of the negatives. Right. So the, the, the way I describe it is to my friends here, as I'll say, Atlanta has maybe more of a ceiling on its yeah. upside, experientially. Like L.A., like you know, right, you right, could right. go nuts here, right? right? There's no ceiling on the experience. Wait, what were you doing in Miami? Uh, we went down to visit friends who okay. moved there. From, so they yeah. moved to Atlanta. They moved from Atlanta. From Atlanta? We have tons okay. of friends from Atlanta that are moving to Florida. Yeah. I think mostly for tax reasons, right? Because Florida has zero income you know, tax. I, when I really drilled down with people, that was certainly a factor, but I never found it to be like in the top two reasons people move there. Ask them where were their other choices, right? So most people, like there are a lot of people who say, well, I was going to move to Texas, right. Tennessee, or Florida. Yeah. All of which have zero um, income tax. So does Nevada and like Nevada, Washington? I don't know if Washington does. Well, either Washington or Oregon. I think Washington. Um, what were the reasons you heard? Weather, lockdown rules, mm -hmm. which I was surprised about. Um, and positive kind of energy, the same reason people had moved to Silicon Valley or, you know, somewhere where people were very optimistic about the future. It is an optimistic place. It's a crazy optimistic place. And I was hanging out with some of those crypto bros. What um, was that like? I've been writing a lot about crypto lately. Crypto um, bros. Describe a crypto bro to me. Dude, there's an NFT drop this Thursday. We have to be there for it. It's going to be huge. We're going to be on the mint. Like, I know it's like being in the boiler room, except um, everyone is happy. Yeah. Do you understand cryptocurrency? Do you feel like you have a good handle on it and, and understand why people ascribe value to it? I, I do recently. Yeah. Hey, explain. Because I don't understand. I don't really understand cryptocurrency. So from a value standpoint. Oh, I can't answer that question. I can't answer anything from a value standpoint. Okay. That's why I'm not a business guy. Like, I don't understand, like, any of that, ever. Um, but I can understand, like, it from a, a societal, technological viewpoint. Um, but I, I'm not investing my money in it. Right. So, so but I don't me, invest my money in anything except um, index funds. I just don't. Well, you have understand. no free will. I have no exactly, and <laughs> neither do the money managers. Yeah, yeah. So right. just give me an algorithm, and I'll plug in. That right. actually is logically consistent. It I really is. It. I love that. Um, okay, so what about the social side? Where you're like, I understand the social side of. It's just about decentralization. It's about like, wait, uh, Facebook's taking my data and selling it, and they're and it's my, and I'm writing these tweets, and someone else is like profiting off of it and using my data. So how can we get rid of all those middlemen? It's very much part of like tearing institutions down. It's like first they came for, well, I thought they first came for the magazines, but I'm sure they came for something else first. But just tearing all those things down and so that people can directly 
connect? Like, why do we need corporations? Like, can't we just have a DAO? Why do we need a bank? Can't we create our own monies? Like, all these kind of bigger questions, once you connect enough people quickly enough, they're going to ask the questions of why do we need institutions? And it's going to have some disastrous effects, and it's probably going to have some really positive effects. Like, why do I need Uber? Like, why can't I just directly pay someone for a ride? Like, these are the kind of questions that the blockchain allows you to ask, because it allows you to set up a contract between individuals instantly. Why do you think the Federal Reserve and, and all these governments allow cryptocurrency? China doesn't. Trying to shut it down. I, I mean, I, that seems you like you lose a lot of power when you let this happen. That's what I would think. It's interesting. I don't. The SEC is having some, from what I can observe from talking to people, some interesting thoughts about that question. Which is, what has made America powerful? Like, is it central control or is it more of a libertarian, like capitalist idea that if we let all of these things flourish, we will control the networks. We may not have central control of the networks, but American companies and American people will control, you know, the way the networks work. And is is that really America's like power? I, I think they're having those questions at the SEC on a high level. I just think of like how the government wants to maintain the right to be the only issuer of legal tender. Well, I I've read about before they were. <laughs> the Wild West was kind of ugly. Like, I mean, you see the way. People don't really know if your money's, you know, trust this money compared to that money. I mean, before the Civil War, every local bank was printing its own money. And if you traveled to Philly from New York, like, and you went to a bar, the bartender had to have, like, a photo album's worth of monies to check yours against to make sure, like, it's it can get pretty difficult. Sounds like cryptocurrency. It's just like cryptocurrency. Right? I mean, yeah. I think I read that, um, that uh, Elon wants to do something with with dog dog coin and doji Twitter. is that how you say it yeah doji yeah <laughs> doji doji with doji coin and twitter yeah and he's like we're, we're only going to accept payment in doji coin good luck yeah <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about it? You, you're, just, you're very active on i twitter. wrote a i wrote a piece where i had to get a crypto wallet uh-huh. by the way it's not a crypto wallet it's a soft wallet and a hard wallet and some wallets only do Bitcoin, so you may need a couple wallets. The amount of time and exhaustion it took me to set up a wallet, I can't believe this many people own crypto. It's, it's really hard to own crypto. My first real concern with crypto was years ago, my ex-wife started talking about trading crypto. This is, I want to write a piece about <laughs> crypto widows. Yeah. <laughs> because it's usually women. It's usually the dudes who are trading it. And they're spending all their time on their phone looking at when these drops happen. And then um, they lose their girlfriends. Like it happens over and over again. So, so tell me what your ex-wife did. Well, she just got into trading cryptocurrencies. That's a weird thing for a lady to do. That's what I thought. Um, maybe. Sort of sexy. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I thought that it was... It, it, do you remember when uh, Joe Kennedy tells the story about getting the shoe shined in, the, in 1929? And no. The, there, there's a classic story on Wall Street about... Uh, Joe Kennedy sitting down for uh, with a shoe shine boy, getting a shoe shine, and the shoe shine boy starts giving him st- stock oh, tips. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and so he leaves from getting a shoe shine and goes and says, "Sell everything." Right. Because if the shoe yeah. shine boy thinks he can right. make money in the stock market, then it's time to just exit. So I was talking. Do you know Ben McKenzie, who was on the OC? Mm. So he, he's an actor. Yeah, no, I heard and that. And he and this guy Jacob Silverman, who's a writer for The New Republic. Mm-hmm. Are 
writing a book against crypto. Because Ben's gotten, he saw all his actor friends go on commercials and do things, and he's like, I'm not doing that. Like, this seems like a Ponzi scheme. It looks really bad. And I was talking to them, and they made the really good point that, like, the commercials you see for crypto are all about, like, the Matt Damon one's about boldness, and the Larry David one's about FOMO, right? And he's like, once you've reached that level of the pyramid scheme, which is, like, I'm not going to explain it to you, but you need to jump in before you miss out. Like, I agree. I'm not going to tell you what this thing is, but just buy it before you miss out. That's a, that's a dangerous you know, end of the pyramid. I had a, a good friend of mine. Um, he passed away in an in a, in a airplane wreck, tragically. He and his wife, a small plane wreck, uh, about six years ago. But he, um, he had been huge into crypto for like a decade. Oh, wow. Like early, early, and was like a, you know, totally believed in it. And this is a very smart um, investor, you know, investment mind. Yeah. And I could, I just never could understand like what it is or what it, why it has value or why, why it has this value versus 2x of that value. Right. Like all of it feels just completely arbitrary um, to me. And so I've never been able to get into it. But interestingly, when he, uh, when he died in this wreck, he had like $10 million. In crypto, oh, and he couldn't get it out, and they and they didn't know how to get it. What, out. Did they ever get it out? They finally it took like two years. By the time they got out, it was worth like thirty million. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then I don't know what they did with it, you know, because well, it was so it was part brother. of setting up your wallet is you. Have, this is remember, this is a high tech, super high tech thing. You have to write down like a twelve or twenty four word uh, letter phrase. 24. Each words 20, 12, 24 words and a phrase. You have to physically write it down with pen and paper and then hide that or put that somewhere and keep it. And if you lose that code, you are done for. It's like an old school Swiss bank account. Uh, crazier. And then there's these things you can buy, these steel tubes where you can put your piece of paper and then you can, because um, this will be fire resistant and, and water resistant. And then I was talking to guys with a bunch of crypto and they were like, yeah, you want a couple of those tubes, but you don't want it. You want to keep some of the words in one place and some of the words in another place. So you don't want them in the same place. And eventually I was like, where do you keep them? It's like, we can't tell you. I was like, do you mean your parents' house? They were like, we just can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, because if somebody got those words, then they could take all the Bitcoin or they could take all the crypto, guess, right? Yeah, because it's not tied to, there's no account rep. You can't call Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs and say, uh, I don't remember my account number, but you know I'm an, you know, I and they've know got all your so stuff. so early in this stuff that I couldn't believe this. I was like, you know how Vanguard makes sure that like my money's safe? They, they have my voice. They literally do voice recognition on the phone. And I was like, that seems more advanced than your system of writing down 24 words on a piece of paper in a steel tube. But they're dealing with an entire banking system that's been validated exactly. by the country. And exactly, so, you yeah. know, the way the money sits, the way the money moves, yeah. it's all... Um, Sanctioned. Yeah. Um, Wait, so your wife bought a bunch of like. I guess Bitcoin my ex-wife, my ex-wife, ex yeah. you know, got really into like buying big. Uh, but is this something you discussed? Because it's your joint money, right? Not, no, no, it's my ex-wife. It's my ex-wife. Oh, so, oh, after, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, this way, we, I've, I've been divorced eight years. But oh, oh so you yeah. still talk to her? Or you've heard? Yeah, we have kids together, oh, kids. and so like you know, we we're talking God. about the kids. But then she'll say something I'm like, "Oh, you're trading," and for me, like that feels like a contraindicator. When yes. she tells me that she's doing something, I get really nervous about. I'm like, "How did you?" Where did you hear about this, and why are you doing it? Right, because like, I'm living in a in a world where I'm at like the cutting edge of all sorts of investment life. 
Oh, oh so she's the shoeshine boy. That's right. in, in this analogy, it's yes. a contraindicator, right? Where it's hard for me to be like, God, this really has a future when, you know. You know, I'm realizing my contraindicator is my, my mom, who I love very much. I talked to her on the way here. But she, I, I don't think my wife and I have told her this. We, we call her Zelig. Because whatever is going on in the culture, she is doing, and she has no idea that, like, she thinks she's found it. She's like, I'm in a poker game now. You know, whatever it is. Like, I just decided I like poker. Or, like, I like to drink wine now. Whatever it's it late. is. It's late. It's late. Yes. It's late, but she's fully embraced it, and she does not know about crypto. So you've got a little, got a little time to What's Zelig mean? Oh, it's that Woody Allen movie where um, he inserted himself into like every, it was, it was kind of, from what I remember, the Forrest Gump thing where he was just, wherever big thing was happening, he was in. It was. And the movie's called Zelig? Yeah. I never saw that. It must've been in the 70s. It was. Um, I missed a whole bunch. I mean, I was born in the 70s, so like. Me too. You know, there's a lot of yeah. stuff that we like. I don't know why I watched Zelig. There was a time I watched all the Woody Allen movies, I think. I watched the Woody Allen movies in the 80s. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped. Eventually, like I would, I went to like three or four screens and like this, this is truly awful. I don't need to do this to myself anymore. He's a unique character, though. I mean, like his. his I've heard. Work. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One. One. Uh, I want to circle back on one. You have other so thing. many pieces of paper. I here. know. Well, you know. Do Sarah, the people in the restaurant care? I feel like they're not looking at us at all. Well, there's no people in here. Right what now. happened? It's in between. Do we drive them out? That they're going to be coming in here shortly because it's noon. Okay. So. But well, those are breakfast people. That that we when you walked in it was oh, breakfast right, still it was late breakfast L A so a weird place ten o'clock breakfast yeah ten ten thirty breakfast wow. you know <laughs> um, Sarah has been wanting me to ask you about Girls Gone Wild two thousand two oh I was just in this documentary tell about me that. yeah yeah that's what she was telling me was, was she in Girls Gone Wild yeah <laughs> why, why does she want to know I don't know. she's like do you you don't have that footage do you because I'd really like to destroy it <laughs> um. I, I interviewed Joe Francis a bunch of times, so that's why they asked me to do and, this. And where, I don't even know much about uh, Joe Francis. So, like, who who is Joe? Is the founder of Girls Gone Wild? Is that right? For sure. Yeah. And what and what's he like? And what what was it like interviewing him? And what did you learn about that whole movement? And you know, how does that how does what happened back then relate to today? And it's interesting. Someone else called me about a Joe Francis documentary a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, "There's another one coming out." Like, I don't know why people are revisiting him. Or that moment right now, I was very interested in that moment because it's hard. Our culture's changed so much since then that it's hard to put yourself back in the brain of someone who found that shocking. Um, but it was, and it was. I, try, I kept. I was working at Time Magazine. I kept pitching a story, a cover story called "Girls Gone Wild," which was going to be mostly about Paris Hilton. There was a whole movement of, and this really was sort of new of young women who drank hard and uh, were sexually aggressive. Danced on tables. And got in fights, like physical fights. This was, this was all somewhat new in the culture. Um, and I think he um, exploited that and showed that and it had a cultural moment. He was a, um, he is, he lives in Mexico now. Um, and he's, he's an intense dude. He's very competitive, and there's a lot of anger in him. And uh, I, I, so the first time I went out there, I had gotten this column from, after 9-11, Time Magazine got rid of my column for a while, and I convinced Entertainment Weekly to let me write their back page. And for one of my first columns, I was convinced that Girls Gone Wild was fake in my head, because I was a nerd. 
and I didn't know people really acted this way. Like, this can't be real. This is scripted. Yes. And specifically what I thought, and again, you have to put yourself in the time period, was I was like, all these women are perfectly shaved. And what are the odds that they did that? They happened to do that right before they ran into a Girls Gone Wild camera. Right? So I was like, this is fake. It was, it was spring break in Miami or wherever, right? Well, there's a lot of holes in my theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so, so I called them. And I was like, can I come out and spend, you know, follow you around for a day or two? They're like, for sure. So I go out and I'm on the Girls Gone Wild bus. And the first thing I notice is that, like, it's real. But what I didn't realize was the economics of it were the bar. Do they pay Girls Gone Wild? The bar promotes this thing for Girls Gone Wild. Like, Girls Gone Wild is coming. So all the people who are coming that night have been gearing up for this for weeks. It's they're not excited. like they just showed up at the bar and found the Girls mm-hmm. Gone Wild cameras. Mm-hmm. So they've given some thoughts to what they're going to do, what they might do. So that, so how much they're willing to drink. How much they shave. How much they all shave. of it, yeah. <laughs> all the things that you're doing. Yeah. Uh. So that's the first thing I noticed. Um, and then I was afterwards in the back, back in the van after they'd shot. And... It's a, it was Kid Rock's tour bus, I think, that they had taken, they bought and taken over. And there, there's, you know, the bedroom part of an RV in the back. Mm-hmm. And they closed. The bedroom part of a rock star's RV. Exactly. So they closed that door. Um, and I knocked. And they're like, yeah, come in. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And, they're like, and then Joe's like, let him come in. And he's like, bring a water bottle. I was like, okay. So I brought a water bottle. And there's a woman, uh, they're all taping or masturbating. And, and then, with the water bottle that I brought in for non-drinking purposes. And uh, her phone rings. And Joe's like, Joe grabs the phone. And he's like, who is this? And she's like, it's my boyfriend. And like a normal person's reaction would be like, oh no, hide the phone. Instead, he answers it. And he's like, this is Joe Francis from Girls Gone Wild. I've got your girlfriend here. And she's naked and she's doing this. And it was so, and it turned out the guy was some kind of suitcase pimp and he was totally into it. But the, he's, he was, it was clear that like, to me, that he was, the woman was an object he was using to compete with other men in a very mm-hmm. direct way, like as if they were gold bullion or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the first time that like, I saw that kind of anger and what he was, some of what he was up to. And so you, you think that his, psychological motives the women didn't necessarily understand or the women weren't buying into. They were doing it for other reasons. They had all their own psychological. So why do you think the women were doing this? Well, I was interested in that too. So there was a woman I talked to at the bar who had flashed. And actually, Entertainment Weekly, she let me use her name, but Entertainment Weekly, I got in a fight with them because I was like some kind of journalistic integrity where I wanted to use her name. And they were like, she might regret this one day. And they were very kind. They took her name out. They were probably right. but I talked to her at length, and I remember one thing I asked her at the bar. I was like, she's like, I did this for me. I wanted to do it. I was like, no, you wouldn't. You did it to be on camera. I'm like, would you flash someone who was writing a print story? And then she's like, yes. And then she flashed me. And I was like, oh, this that kills my theory right there. <laughs> um, she did it for the same reason. I mean, to simplify it, she did it to be seen. Like, to get it, we all want attention to be seen. And she felt pretty, and she felt... Um, do you want, I don't think it was much deeper than that. That sounds different than like Woodstock, you know, where like the 60s, it felt like the flashing was a different kind of motive. 
Like a freedom kind of thing? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. This was not a freedom kind of thing. This was a... Well, I mean, a little bit, but no. It was... It was I was once at the... I was there a couple times at the Playboy Mansion, and Hugh Hefner was showing me around, and there's a bunch of photographs. It's all photographs. But of women at the mansion from, like, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And I was looking at it, and the way the women reacted to the camera was so radically different. In the 70s, it felt like um, candidates. It felt like they were just naked and posing. And then somewhere in the 80s, they started performing for the camera, like a different understanding of the camera. Um, and, and so I think some of that is, is the difference between Woodstock and Girls Gone Wild. It's just this different, like we were talking about before, like these inputs change us. And the input of so much media consumption and performance changes the way we act. Because now we're, th I mean, you can see it, the way we treat cameras now is um, so performative. It's, it doesn't record history. It's like we become something else for the camera. Uh, and I think hmm. that was some of what was happening. How does that translate? Today it feels like... We're all it's doing like, it. Yeah, it's like yeah, that we're on all, steroids. We just do it ourselves with selfies on Instagram or wherever we or TikTok or wherever we are. Yeah. But I mean, think about think about the evolution of from the women. I mean, There's you and I women. have only talked on a podcast. We've never had a conversation in real life. There's always okay. a third party that we're talking to. That's messed up. That's not human. <laughs> it's true. That's very distancing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had conversations from two thousand miles away. Yeah. But uh, but not even conversations. Like a uh, conversation in which we're we're not just trying to like, we're trying to impress some imaginary third party right. that we're not even like truly being with each other. Like it's not, none of this is good. It's yeah. If, if, if spirituality and time are somehow linked. Yeah. We're, we're performing for the future, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Not so good. What do you think about, like you, you got me thinking about um, girls gone wild and that was like, you know, I was in, you High school. In, oh, I thought you were in an episode. No, I had no. <laughs> I was, <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, I think some of my high school life, if it would have been filmed, might have qualified for some of those. All of mine. <laughs> I mean, if we count like what we were talking about in Dungeons and Dragons, for sure. <laughs> exactly like Girls Gone Wild. <laughs> Wait, yeah. your high school life was like Girls Gone oh Wild? Oh, my gosh. What? I mean, yeah. I mean, they, 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 the girls were crazy. The 90s. But you were here in LA. No, no. no. I was in. Um, I was in Northern California, near, Where? near Modesto and Stockton, a little town called Manteca. Which is the party Our, capital of it, America? I mean, it was what? I mean, it was, a, it, 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 was, it, was, it was farm life, you know, and partying. And, the, you know, it was, the, the, it was an era where girls, they were watching this stuff, Girls Gone Wild, and then they were living it. Right? They were, they were it's, it's life imitating art. They're, for them, Girls Gone Wild was a moment in time of informing them about what other teenagers were doing. Wait, are you, how old are you? 47. I guess, yeah, I'm 50. Those three years would have made that much of a difference. Yeah, I graduated high school in 1993, and then yeah. I graduated from college in 1997. Yeah. But, you know, 91, 92, 93, yeah. I would think that was like the heart of Girls Gone Wild. And maybe it kept no, going. No, after, a little after. It was a little after that? Yeah. Maybe the girls were just early. I mean, these girls, you know. Maybe it's you. Yeah. You're <laughs> You're a strapping, <laughs> barrel-chested man. No one was going wild. I, yeah, I just inspire them. I never, nothing wild ever happened around me at all. 
Well, I but I, I remember that era. I just remember that era. It was it was back tattoos. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, lower back tattoos and girls gone wild and you know girls feeling like last? they were tough, acting like they were tough, acting like yes. they owned their lives. You know. Um, Did you see that last Adam McKay movie about uh, Don't Look Up? Yes. So you, yeah. so at the very end, after the credits, when the president Meryl Streep, the president, lands in our new planet because ours has been destroyed, and they're, but they're naked. Yes. She's got the tramp stamp. Yes. I was like, we are so close to having a president with a tramp stamp. 100%. 100%. I mean, if she was, was born, so in, the, like, she she was was born a, in the 70s. She was a Sarah Palin kind of character. I wonder and, if Sarah has any tattoos. She seems like, you know, oh, there could have been an era where that would make sense. I'd be willing to gamble on it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'd put some crypto on that. All right, so, so, so here's my point. Is that, Sorry. So you think about like the Girls Gone Wild era, the yep. 90s, where the girls were, they were they were going wild just for the sake of being wild. Whereas today, like when you think of, um, like I think somebody, a buddy of mine is an investment banker and he was telling me about OnlyFans. Right. Right, because OnlyFans. Is this what he mostly invests in? Yeah, no. He, <laughs> he was just telling me about this deal, how much money OnlyFans was making and how much the girls on this thing were making. Right. And I was, and, and as you were talking about Girls Gone Wild, I was thinking of, of those girls had no idea that 20 years later, 25 years later, there was going to be an opportunity, not for Joe Francis to make a bunch of money. Right. Right. But for them to make a bunch of money doing not that dissimilar of things, right? Right. And this is the decentralization argument, right? That like, we don't even need OnlyFans. Why can't I make a direct deal with the cam girl and cut out so that she gets 99% of the money instead of whatever OnlyFans gives you. Well, that's, I mean, that's all platforms, right? And but this the is the argument against platforms, is the crypto how, argument. How does that, so crypto literally allows you to somehow bypass a platform? Don't yes. you still need the technology to? No, because the blockchain allows you, I can't believe, I'm, I feel like Matt Damon, I'm not encouraging anyone to buy <laughs> any crypto. Um, the blockchain allows you to essentially create contracts immediately with other people, directly. Huh, but but how is the content going to be delivered? Right, it still needs a platform. Like if if the if it's like if 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 the girl's no, just, in Atlanta and right. you're in L.A. and you're trying to pay her to be a girl gone wild on your, she'll just send me a video. Yeah, like, that, that part's not hard, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. But the, the sending. Oh, I see what you're saying on your phone, right? Yeah, so yeah. now it's just yeah. a sell to sell. Or like whatever. that's the whole point. Like now that we're all connected to each other, why do we need these middlemen? And maybe, and I I think we might. And there might be someone like Andreessen Horowitz is saying. Well, we'll still need middlemen. They won't need to take as big a cut, but we'll still need platforms always to make middlemen. things simpler. It, it, yeah. Middlemen in every, every world yeah. facilitate transactions, yeah. create transactions, bring to your attention. They say, hey, you know, last year we were talking and I heard that you wanted a 1968 Corvette. And just the other day I was over with another. So the argument that they would make is in a world where information is this vast and this cheap and this well-delivered, I don't need that person. I can just do a quick search and find out. Huh. Like, that's the argument. I don't know yeah. the answer. I don't think we're there yet. Probably but, not, but yeah. we're getting close. Yeah. Be, I mean, honestly, like when I want to buy a used car, I, I can go to a couple of sites and find them pretty quick. I know I'm going to sites. But, right. Well, you, yeah. Like you had mentioned Uber. How am I going to find an Uber without a platform? That shows me where the cars are, or somehow connects me to the cars. That's it. It feels like the same thing. Like you're you're talking some about some kind of search, right? Yeah. These girls that that once went wild for free and now go wild. 
to get paid. Right. Right. They get paid to do the wild thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and <laughs> nice. So, right? Good. <laughs> Maybe you are 50. It's <laughs> <I was> a, <laughs> a deep cut. <laughs> so you know this guy, Dave, Dave Asprey? Huh. Who, um, he started Bulletproof Coffee. And, okay. And he became this kind of guru of biohacking, which is this, it's like very Silicon Valley bro attempt to live past 100. It's all, it's the, you know that Tucker Carlson, yeah. uh, Santana, your balls thing? Yeah. That was a biohacking thing. I did that juve um, infrared thing, not just on my balls, on my whole body. And, <laughs> but I was going there three times a week and started every day by walking into those, it wasn't called a cryogenic chamber, a cryo you know, you walk in that like negative 100 degree thing yeah. for like five minutes. So I was doing all that for months here. That's all I associate this block with now. Because this was all an attempt to somehow lengthen your life. Like make your, just make it your body It was all healthier. an attempt to write a story making ah. fun of this. But yes, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I guess to lengthen my life too. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you went through the process that a lot of people are doing, all these, these different hacks yes. that people are trying to yeah. do to experience them yeah. so that you could say... You could write funny stuff about it. Yeah, but I also kind of like a friend kind of talked to me into who was really into this. Well, now, what did you take away that you thought was, oh, that, that actually... Just one thing. Well, the, one main thing and lots of little things. But it did, because I was tracking everything, you know, or as much as I could about my body. I really, this is so obvious, but I really became much more fanatical about sleep and the things that affect my sleep. And so I've become kind of a pain in the ass around the house about sleep. Tell me about that. So you determined that sleep was one of the key elements. Yeah. As far as if you want to be healthy, if you want to be in shape, if you want to like, it affects everything, like physical recovery, mental recovery. Like you can't, to the point now where I used to stay up, like I write best at night mm -hmm. and I will now shut it down. I'll be like, story's not going to be in in time or I'll have to like, yeah, I will go to sleep instead of working. I will, um, alcohol and sugar the more you have and the later at night you have. Terrible. Terrible. Like worse than you think. Like in, in what way? Like, so tell me some of the things you learned about sleep. Oh, you'll think you're having a good night of sleep after you drink, but in reality you're waking up tons of time in the middle of the night and interrupting your sleep. Um, because once uh, the sedation wears off sometime in the middle of the night, your body like goes the other way and kicks in with kind of the adrenaline stuff. Um, and you don't kind of remember it because you're half asleep. And so this is disrupting your body's healing? Yeah, there's like different kinds of sleep which you can track on these. I had, so I was wearing an aura ring and a whoop band and I had like a third way of tracking my sleep, I'm trying to remember. Oh, my Fitbit, well, or my Apple Watch, yeah. So I was tracking my sleep in three ways every night, which is too much, by the way. I also think tra over tracking is gamifying yourself in a way that's not healthy. Just get some general information and move on. But yeah, so, so there's different, at least three different kinds of sleep. There's like light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep. And the, I, I'm gonna confuse them all, but the deep sleep I think is physic, more physical recovery. And they all, no one knows what all this stuff does. And the REM was more um, mental recovery. And as you get older, your sleep gets crappier. And do we know why that is? I don't think people know why we sleep. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, clearly it, it, it helps us heal our brains and our bodies. But it's so messed up. Like I imagine some alien creature coming down and like looking at all the animals going to sleep and be like, what just happened? Like it doesn't make sense. Psychologically, though, think what a joy it is to get a, re a refresh, right? Where the day is ended, you go to sleep, you wake up the next day and you're kind of starting again. 
but there's evolutionarily, some... if you were creating like a species that would live and succeed, you wouldn't be like, and then you'll get really vulnerable for for a third of your day and just like <laughs> lay there still, wait for someone to kill you. Like it's weird. That is weird. Yeah. Anyway, hey, you know we're, uh, we're out of time, but the good news is we get to go have lunch. Oh, good. So let's wrap up. You know, the the Waldorf here has a fantastic rooftop deck. Really? Yeah, it overlooks all the hills. I feel like you're wooing me. Yeah. I feel like you have, you have <laughs> oh, a room that's here. Going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very nervous. <laughs> You've dressed up. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to go up to the rooftop deck. It overlooks Beverly Hills. It's beautiful. If, uh, you know, anybody's listening, if you come to L.A., the uh, Waldorf is a beautiful hotel. Yeah. It's so far, uh, I'm, I can't, it's gone to Sean George. Yeah, Which normally, you know, my normal go-to has been the Four Seasons on Doheny. Oh, I, um, yeah. I don't like the Four Seasons. You don't? Is that the most, obno- it's the most obnoxious thing I can possibly I want to hear why. What's the alternative? I mean, why don't you like it and what's the alternative? I'm, I'm from New Jersey and I'm uncomfortable. I don't know if that's a weird thing to start with. Um, but I'm uncomfortable with the level of service. I don't, the walking in and them remembering that I like whatever and giving it to me and, and knowing my name, it's, I, I just, I, I feel very, very uncomfortable. Feels invasive? Or you, or you like a, uh, it, a Jersey experience where the, where the service is yes. angrier? Yes. I feel like there's this class distinction that is so profound at a Four Seasons that it makes me question the entire capitalist structure we live on. I, I can't handle it. I mean, I feel like I feel like I feel like someone should take me down. Like I'm the man, and I need to be destroyed if I'm at a Four Seasons. <laughs> I, I deserve it. There is something to that in the sense that, like, I think of like really wonderful country clubs that are yeah. right. That that all the staff is trained. It's yeah. basically like um, you. Well, it's it's what we were describing earlier about Will. You decide. You're like you have this desire for a world where everybody treats you in a certain way. And then you pay to have them all rewired. Yeah. In, in, yeah. in, in all this service. Yeah. In a way that you get the life that you actually feel like you deserve. When I'm at a Four Seasons, I f- smell the revolution coming from the streets. We got to wrap it up. Sarah said we're going to lose our lunch reservation. We don't want right, to do that. No, I want to God, eat. no. I want people to serve me lunch. Thanks for doing this again. I always love these conversations. Thank you. This has been the Black Hall Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.